Hey guys, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, where I interview the absolute best health and wellness practitioners from across the globe to show you what they do so you can do it too. This is because, like you, I did not always feel that health was easy. I had tried different diets, exercise plans, but often felt misled by an industry that really thrives on you not getting healthy and always spending money on the next new thing. Because of this, I'm getting bare naked on health and pulling back the curtain to show you that being truly healthy is simple. Wherever you are in your health journey, I want to show you that with minimal effort, you can get maximum results and do what you love. Play with your kids, go for a hike, and crush it in your business, all while feeling great. To give a kickstart, I encourage you to go over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to access my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and that the show is really sponsored by you guys. Each of you that works with me that I am able to take on as a client helps me to be able to keep putting out these podcasts for free. So I just want to thank you, each of you, for your love and support. Hey guys, I'm your host, Nick Horowski, and welcome to the Bare Naked Health Podcast, episode number 71. In today's episode, I interview fellow podcaster, Dr. Chris Masterjohn. Be sure to stick around for the end of the show to hear what Chris has coming out about inflammation, what his favorite video game is, and his thoughts on consciousness of food quality. Alrighty guys, welcome to another episode of the Bare Naked Health Podcast. And on the line today, I have Chris Masterjohn. Now, Chris, first question I ask everybody who comes on the show is, tell us about your health journey in 10 sentences or less. All right, uh, 10 sentences or less. Okay, teenager, went on the zone diet. Then I went vegan. I went uh, on the soy zone diet when I was vegan. Then I developed a lot of health problems. Then I found Weston Price. Then I started eating a lot of nutrient-dense animal foods, and my health became great, and I've continued to learn along the way, but those are the major turning points. What was one of those that maybe really was the most pivotal, if you will? Like, was it, okay, switching over at Weston A. Price, was it even going vegan because then realizing other things from that? Where did everything kind of turn around for you? Yeah, I mean, I guess the, <laughs> I kind of feel like the two major turning points were going vegan and discovering Weston Price because I don't really think that discovering Weston Price would have had that much significance had I not gone vegan in the first place. So I, I think, you know, it, when you look at the alternative health communities or any kind of community that's uh, around, centered around some sort of health-related topic, I would say, by and large, they're quite often composed of people who came there because they developed some kind of health problems that they were trying to solve. I mean, you might also have some other motivations, like people just trying to see how they can maximize their performance or something like that, or people you know, often get into veganism for ethical reasons or ecological reasons or animal welfare, you know, uh, animal welfare reasons that aren't necessarily motivated by health problems. But I think it's, you know, I, I feel like the, the message of Weston Price probably doesn't mean that much to someone who doesn't have any experience with 
tooth decay or doesn't have any experience with their energy slugging or you know so to to me what what really kind of got me um the reason that just even hearing about Weston Price was so pivotal to me was that I had gone to the dentist as a vegan and found out that I had over a dozen cavities and needed two root canals. And then right around the same time, my boss, who was the manager of the dining hall I was working in as an undergrad, who was a Weston Price enthusiast, gives me a pamphlet about this dude who traveled the world in the 1930s discovering the cause of total immunity to tooth decay. So, I mean, yeah, I'd had, had cavities before I went vegan, but I had never had a dozen, you know, I was primed at that point to hear the phrase immunity to tooth decay and devour <laughs> whatever came next, you know. So, um, I mean, so I think that, yeah, I think that, uh that experience, that whole experience going in and out of veganism was, was really pivotal for me. And, um, and yeah, yeah, the, you know, the, the experience with Western Price was really, it was a revolution in my, I was after the revolution in my oral health and I accidentally stumbled into a revolution in my mental health and in my physical health in general from that. I would say, you know, as time has gone on, I think that the principles of Weston Price have been very enduring for me and have stayed with me. But I've certainly, uh, I've certainly had other pivotal moments in my health that have been less about diet, that have made me, you know, really understand the importance of sleep and physical fitness and stuff like that. And actually, kind of ironically, I would say that after I really had my own experience with health and really wanted to pay that forward and started, you know, moving out of a career in, originally I was going to teach high school history. <laughs> and then, uh, I was going to ask I, you, cause I, I, you have the PhD in nutritional sciences, but I was gonna say, what was your undergrad? Where yeah, did my, that kind of all start for you then too? My undergrad is in history. So okay. I was a senior when all this went down with, with Weston Price and I, and it took me five years. So I basically, I spent, I spent the last year uh, kind of conflicted about what I wanted to do because I knew that as soon as I finished, I was going to start doing science classes. But I didn't want to abandon the history, history degree in my fifth year. So, um, yeah, so I, like, it was, it was like I graduated and then like, a couple weeks later I was in chemistry classes because I wanted to go to medical school. And it was during that period of time where I kind of fell in love with the microscopic things and my professors were telling me I should go into research and friends were telling me I should go into research. And I started writing for the Weston A. Price Foundation and I was developing all these hypotheses that no one would research unless I went into research and so on. And, and, I, and I went down that road. But I think what happened through that time is that the more that I started intellectualizing my experiences with health, the more that I kind of, uh, it's, you know, it's, with writing particularly, it's really easy to get caught up in deadlines. And then you throw grad school in, into that mix. And, you know, I'll tell you, one of the, I think one of the most important articles that I ever wrote was in 2007, I wrote uh, an article that was on vitamin K2, identifying it as Weston Price's Activator X. And it was called On the Trail of the Elusive X Factor. 
And that was kind of a turning point in my life because that was the, that was the, um, on the one hand, I was doing my most important work. But on the other hand, when I wrote that article, I probably slept two hours a night for like two weeks to, <laughs> to, to get that done. And I was on the computer for like 17 hours a day. And that was, that was kind of right around that area of time was a major negative turning point for me in terms of developing a lot of muscular tension in my head, neck, and shoulders. And, I think, and then I went to graduate school. And then graduate school was like, um, I mean, graduate school ta- like forces the average person who goes to graduate school to approximate that. But then you take me and put me in graduate school, and I already have that those workaholic tendencies in part, in part of me that were being activated before I even got there. So, you know, I like I went into graduate school jacked and came out skinny fat, and um, and so it, it's been it's taken me years to try to um, be you know because my like I grew up as a brainy nerd, and then I encountered all of this you know, hardcore physical information. And then I, uh, after experiencing it, I, I took the brainy nerd part of it and, and intellectualized everything. And I think, you know, all of that work has been really important for me to do, but I need to put a lot of effort and control, like cognitive control to make sure that I'm paying attention to all these other aspects of my, my life that are, um, that, that I need to pay attention to, like staying fit and sleeping and relaxing and having fun and things like that. And how has have taking uh, all those other things into account really benefited you uh, on the other side, where it is all of that cognitive uh, load that you're dealing with? Like you said, the brainy nerd type, how does really kind of rounding that off really help you out? Well, it depends on, how, you know, how you want to look at that. Like on on the one hand, um, my health is <laughs> my like it doesn't matter how good you eat if you're only sleeping a few hours a night. So um, I kind of hit a crisis point where you know the set of health problems that I had when I was vegan were were totally different. But you you hit a whole other set of health problems when you aren't sleeping. And so uh, so I mean just my and of course obviously if you're not working out then you're your physique suffers and your energy and fitness and everything suffers. So, um, so by paying attention to that, I would say I'm in better physical health, but I think it's much more than that because when I was really heading towards maximal burnout, I was also losing my motivation to do any of the intellectual and creative work that I could, um, eat uh, as well. So I would say that um, just my ability and my motivation to do intellectual and creative work uh, ha- has benefited enormously from balancing my life in that way. Because um, you know, because when, once you hit once you hit burnout, you don't love the things that got you there anymore. You know. <laughs> and Chris, I'd like you to share maybe a little bit on your nighttime routine because this is something I've listened to you talk about before. But I think you do a great job of blending. Uh, real world with just, hey, maximizing that so that you can get the best sleep possible rather than just, hey, not saying, yeah. oh, no, my lights have to be off. Like, I can't do anything at night. No, I think you do a great job of that. So if you wouldn't mind sharing, yeah. please. Well, I, I think in order to get healthy sleep, there's really, 
there's really th three aspects to that. One is that you need the raw materials to make all of the systems work correctly. And so there are a lot of nutrients that are important in even like even if you just take one aspect of regulating sleep, like melatonin, immediately you will see many nutrients that are important. So vitamin B6 is important, vitamin B12 and folate are important. Um, you know, getting protein into the brain in the form of the amino acid tryptophan is important. Carbohydrate helps you do that, and so on and so forth. Um, then there are also the signaling pathways that respond to your environment. So, mod you know, correctly modifying your environment is important. And that generally means that you want to be exposed to a lot of bright light when you wake up in the morning, and you want to be exposed to darkness at night. And for some people who aren't that sensitive, then it may be that the natural ebb and flow of their normal modern life is fine. So they get up and they turn the light on or they open the window or whatever, and they, you know, they're automatically exposed to these things. And someone who's not sensitive can probably get away with just uh, before they go to bed at night, you know, not sticking a screen in their face and reading a book by the living room light. But then you take someone who is more sensitive to light, like me, and I would say that this isn't a hyper, you know, a hypersensitivity. It's probably like twenty or thirty percent of people are this are this sensitive to light. Reading a book by the uh, by the living room light is way too much light, and so I was ex I was experimenting with developing a nighttime routine, and one of the things that I was doing was I was trying to read paperback fiction by candlelight. And I found that if I had one candle next to me, I, I was straining my eyes too much. But if I put two candles next to me, I was giving myself insomnia because even that was too much uh, light for me. And it's not actually light itself. It's really the blue light and to a lesser degree the green light, but main, mainly the blue light. And so, um, and so what I'm doing now is... I installed uh, lights from lowbluelights.com that emit light in the spectrum that is essentially it's essentially the same as if you had a normal light on and you were wearing blue blocking glasses. And I also have a, a program called Flux on my computer that dims the blue light at night. And on my iPhone, I have Night Shift, which also dims the blue light at night. And so I find not only can I read a like a paperback fiction book in that ambient light and not have any sleeping problems, but I can put the blue blocking glasses on and I'll have night shift on my phone. I can stick the phone right in my face and play video games and that doesn't bother my sleep either. So I think that for it might be counterintuitive that, you know, for the person who's not that sensitive, what they if they just have regular lights on and they're not sticking a phone in their face, that might be the thing that helps them sleep at night. But if you're like me, uh, that that in itself is too much light. And really, it's not the screen being in your face. It's the blue light. So you can stick the screen in your face if you adequately put on top of that these technological innovations that help you do whatever you want without the blue light getting in. And to me, it doesn't – like I have to do the blue blocking for two to four hours before I go to bed no matter what I'm doing. So it doesn't make a difference if I'm sticking the screen in my face or not. And so that brings me to the third, the third part of this is that everyone needs a psychological winding down routine. And I say everyone. I mean everyone needs to be adequately wound down when they go to bed. And some people may not need a specific routine to make that happen. 
but if that's the case, it's because their natural constitution is to feel wound down when they go to bed. Others of us need a specific routine to wind down. And so uh, for me, what I do is I'll, I'll usually, um, you know, I start actually by, by making a list of all the critical things that I'm going to do tomorrow just to get it out of my head so I can stop thinking about work. And then I will maybe watch some TV or a movie on my computer and I'll play a video game and then I'll wind things down with some paperback fiction at night. And for me, I really find that the diversity of those different approaches really helps me develop a psychological winding down routine that also doesn't make me bored. So, I mean, if you're going to tell people like you're not allowed to look at screens at night, that really massively cuts down the number of things that you're able to do. And so, you know, that might work for some people. But, you know, I, I mean, I, none of this is a rigid rule. Like sometimes I don't feel like reading whatever book I'm reading. And so yeah, I can play around with it. If I didn't have those options, then if I didn't feel like reading that book or I was too tired to read that book or whatever, then, I, you know, I wouldn't have those options at my disposal. So I think it's, it's really helpful to have uh, technology in that place. And then also in the morning, too, I think, you know, the thing that uh, primes my nighttime routine, particularly with the blue blocking, to actually work is the light exposure in the morning. And again, for some people, maybe waking up and turning the lights on is adequate, but I find that it's re one of the most helpful things that I do to make my nighttime routine actually work for me is to go outside for a half an hour walk in the morning and get exposed to morning sunshine as early as possible. So what's your favorite video game? <laughs> um, I'm pretty old school and I uh, so I like Tetris is my go-to video game. Tetris. Um, but I, I I searched the App Store, the game center or whatever it is for to see if I could play Mario Brothers on my phone and this game called Leps World came up. And it's because in the reviews, people were like, oh, this is just like Mario Brothers. And it's like, it's like Mario Brothers, only it's not as good. And you're a leprechaun that is uh, trying to get pots of gold. And, um, and for some reason, you can get like coconuts and throw them at all the, um, all the like creatures that serve as, uh, it, to be honest, it's a total ripoff of Mario Brothers. And so it's like <laughs> the leprechaun is Mario and then the, like, the, the Koopas are these, I don't know what they are, they, but like, if, I, trust me, if you play it, you will totally see why it's, it's completely a ripoff of Mario. Anyway, I've, I'm, on, uh, I'm on level eight with that and I just figure like, I'll try to finish it. It's not the best game in the world, but I, I started it, so it's keeping me busy for now. And how about what book are you reading right now? I'm reading the third Harry Potter book. Have you read them before or is this the first no. time through? No, I just I went I went over a decade without reading any fiction for the most part. And when I was in grad school there was uh I was I was TAing for a class where um one of the students there really convinced me to read the to start reading the Harry Potter book. So it was like my one of my first summers in grad school. I was like, okay, I'll read the first Harry Potter book, and then that was it for the next ten years or so. And I, and actually, I I never watched the movies because I I decided I had to read the book first, but I never had time to read the book, so I just got a I took a decade off from Harry Potter. I'm get, getting in on it late. So are you going to go back and watch the movies now then too? Yeah, eventually, eventually. 
All right, Chris. I, I also want to talk about kind of what it is that you do. Because now, no, uh, you, you're a professor, but you have so much more. You have podcasts, you have the blog. So if somebody says to you, what do you do? What is your answer? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I guess it depends on context when that's asked. But what I identify most with is that I, I love to study science and to break down complex ideas and translate them into things that are practically useful. And so I can do that in, uh, I can do that in classes. I can do that on my blog. I can do that when I'm helping people. I can do that when I'm on podcasts. Like there are many contexts in which I can do that, but that's the thing that I really love. And I would say that's the thing that kind of ties together the things that you know, all the different ways that I'm bringing what I have to share to the world. And what are you really diving into right now? Like, what is your current area of study that you're just kind of geeking out on and going for? Yeah, well, right now, I'm currently working on a report about resolving inflammation. And I think inflammation is something that has been really misunderstood for a long time. And we have a lot of diseases that involve chronic inflammation and the thing that we've been missing out on is that up until very recently, we have always seen inflammation as this thing that starts and then it just sort of dissipates by itself. And so all of the research that we did around inflammation was about what causes inflammation to start. And all of the drugs that we manufactured or dietary approaches that we developed were, were all about how do we stop that initiation of inflammation. So if you take, for example, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs, um, these are among the most popular over-the-counter drugs in the world. And the way that they work is they target an enzyme that metabolizes the omega-6 fatty acid, arachidonic acid, into inflammatory byproducts that start the inflammation process. And the rationale for using NSAIDs is the same as the rationale uh, that has been invoked for decreasing omega-6 fats in the diet or using high-dose fish oil, all centered on blocking that pathway that's going to initiate inflammation. But what we have been learning in the last 10 years about inflammation is really a, a revolution in terms of our understanding how this works. And what we have discovered is that Inflammation does not just passively resolve, but when you know the normal course of inflammation is you have a reason for the inflammation, for example, you have an infection or you have some mess that needs to be cleaned up in the body, and then the immune system will actively decide when to switch that program from the inflammatory process to the process that cleans up all that mess. So you uh, get an injury and you have some healing process. The immune system is going to come in. It's going to protect against any infection. It's going to protect against any extra movement so you can heal the tissue. And then naturally the immune system will change the mix of cells that are in there and the mix of chemicals that are being made and will actively um, clean everything up. Same thing if you have an infection, et cetera, et cetera. And so what we're finding now is that Probably in chronic inflammation, what is really going wrong is not so much that there's this chronic stimulus, but there's some inability to properly resolve the inflammation. So something's missing, or there's a backup in the pathways that allow that resolution. 
One of the reasons why this has such an impact on why we need to revise everything that we started out thinking about is that the things that block the initiation of inflammation also block the resolution of inflammation. So it turns out that that enzyme, cyclooxygenase or COX, and you know most of the NSAIDs, the over-the-counter uh, anti-inflammatory drugs that people take are COX inhibitors, um, that enzyme metabolizes the omega-6 fat arachidonic acid to inflammation initiators at the beginning of inflammation, but then to inflammation resolvers when the time comes to resolve inflammation. So when you inhibit that enzyme, you get lower peak inflammation, but then you never actually resolve the inflammation. So what you get is chronic low-grade inflammation uh, because that enzyme is important to both aspects of the process. So all of the dietary strategies and the pharma pharmacological strategies that were based on our understanding of the previous decades have kind of gotten us in a mess in the sense that the drugs that people take to manage inflammation may be the single most important cause of chronic low-grade inflammation. And the dietary approaches probably need to be substantially revised. So this is what I'm working on in the immediate time frame of this summer. I'm trying to, I've been doing a real lot of work on this and I'm trying to get it out in the next month or so. Um, more broadly, I, you know, I have a number of interests, but they're all kind of, as people know from reading my work, fat-soluble vitamins are, are kind of always at the front burner for me. So I'm also doing some longer-term work on that kind of thing as well. Getting back onto the inflammation for a second. Yeah. So is this where, uh, and I see this a lot in my practice, like people going from necessarily the itis stage or something to the osis, where is that like something that you, you've picked up on or noticed? Like it goes from that itis, that high inflammation, or you said never even really necessarily reaching a high inflammation to just this chronic, like almost dying of tissue, but just not healing and really a mess of problems there. Yeah, so one of the one of the pivotal studies that was done in in animals some 5 or 6 years ago I think it was they they used an um, animal model of autoimmune arthritis and so they immunized the animals to their own collagen to produce uh in the in the joints of the paws an autoimmune condition that involves swelling and everything. And what they showed was that the normal course in a in a an animal that wasn't exposed to cox inhibitors was for the inflammation to go up to a peak and then to come down and then for it to resolve back to baseline but when they gave the animals cox inhibitors throughout the study the peak inflammation that they reached was never as high but they never returned to baseline. So they just they went down from the peak, but it went down like halfway from the peak and just stayed there. So what you're seeing then is that you in that case is that you you are preventing you're you're preventing the worst case scenario, but you are also preventing the best case scenario and the normal case scenario and so you're um you're kind of going off into la-la land where you don't really know if you're inflamed or you're not inflamed. You're just kind of like in this, it, you're kind of in this area where you should never be. The immune, when the immune system is functioning well, then you know, it's, it's in clear states of being. 
You are infected. We're mounting the response. You're not infected anymore. We're done, right? And when you're in the when you're in this gray area of yeah, we're, we're kind of mounting a response, or we're kind of not like we don't really know what we're doing. I think that's the situation where a lot of people are in, where the the immune system just is not robustly doing uh, anything. It's not you know it's not really mounting a response. It's not really cleaning things up. It's just sort of like half on, half off. And I think that's kind of the that's the area that we want to stay out of. The immune system isn't bad. Initiation of inflammation isn't bad. Inflammation isn't bad. But we want it to be limited into the correct context, you know, at the right time for the right reason. <clears throat> what we're doing with our approaches in general is to um, we're trying to micromanage the process. And so when we instead of the regulation is so complex. What we should be doing is trying to give our bodies what they need to regulate the process and then step out of the way. But our pharmacological approach and, you know, many, you know, as, as much as some people may call their approach holistic or integrative or whatever, quite often we treat nutrients as drugs when we think about these things. So the our pharmacological approach in medicine has been to try to micromanage these processes. And the problem with that is that we only know a fraction of what's actually going on. And then it almost invariably turns out that not only is the thing more complex than we thought it was, but those ruffles actually fundamentally change uh, what we should be doing and reveal critical mistakes where we've been making things worse. Uh, so I think that, um, yeah, I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe the correct terminology of that is, is OSIS. <laughs> I, you can call it whatever you want, but I, th I think it's definitely a, a widespread problem. Thank you for that, because that, that's just keeping me thinking about other things like going on with my patients. Uh, I like, I think of like chronic rotator cuff or biceps uh, injury, like OCs uh, or Achilles, anything like that. And it's like, Okay, we almost have to re-irritate it to cause that inflammation spike before you can kind of get it to to come back down again, and that's how I'm thinking about it. So yeah, thank you for oh, sharing. Oh yeah, that. interesting. Uh, all right, so I want to go back to uh, a little bit and touching on history. So, sure. who in history and not Weston A. Price uh, would you most <laughs> like to have met? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, this is going to sound pretty lame, but I don't know, maybe Jesus. No, I I don't think that's uh, <laughs> lame at all. Now, okay. I don't mean it's lame, but I mean it's it's not a very creative answer. So I'm probably not the first. Yeah, person but it's it's still Jesus. a big uh, a big to do. Well, like okay, yeah. if you were go if you were to go back in time, what would you want to ask Jesus? Um, I'd have to think about that. I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna be lame here. I I don't know what I would ask Jesus. All right. Well, then uh, let's maybe go a little bit different on this. If you were gonna go, if you had a time machine, where would yeah. you go? You know what? You know what I would want to do? I would want to go back in time and talk to myself. But actually, no, that's a terrible idea because I would probably freak myself out. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I, I, I'm so far away from time machines that I, I haven't put enough thought into this. I really haven't. Not a problem. Not a problem. So something else then I'll ask because we talked about maybe going back to see yourself. How about what advice now could you take from your eight-year-old self? 
<laughs> could it, wait, what advice now could I take? Yeah, my what, what could you learn right now my, from your eight-year-old eight self? self was going to come and tell me something. Yeah. Oh, man. I, yeah. Okay. That's, I've only thought about it in the reverse. Let's see. Um, I think if my eight-year-old self uh, were to come and tell me right now, like right now, over myself over the last couple of weeks, probably tell myself to work a little bit less and to spend a little bit more time with my friends and family. I feel like my, my eight-year-old self was starving for attention and wanted to feel loved and, and would have had a lot more appreciation for those types of things and would have looked at me now and said, uh, you know, like, how are, how, why are you working so much and, <clears throat> and, give, and giving up? You know, you should, you should uh, I would have loved to have that opportunity for all of the social interactions that you could have now and you're not even taking them. That's probably what my eight-year-old self would say. All right. So then given that, what are you going to go do? What are you going to go spend time doing with your friends and family? No, I'm going to go work. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, So you talk about getting outside every day though, too. Yeah. Is there anything, I mean, do you just go for a walk around the neighborhood? Do you like to get out more in nature anything like that? Uh, So, so right now I live in Brooklyn and I kind of have the benefit of living in a neighborhood that is very green. I, I mean, that's true of much of Brooklyn, but I, you know, I, I just go for a walk around my neighborhood, but, you know, I go in the areas where, uh, there's, you know, the roads are covered with canopies of foliage and in the spring, it's all like, feels like I'm walking through a botanical garden. So, um, so I feel like I get a, a decent dose of, of nature when I'm, when I'm out there. Uh, it would be much more involved if I wanted to go to something more authentically natural. Um, you know, it's not a forest, it's not a wilderness outside my place. And uh, it would be impractical to get that, that level of nature every morning. Uh, but I, you know, I definitely think that there are, even if you're living in the city, just to be around uh, trees and things like that is very much has a de-stressing effect. So I, you know, I think there's, there's definitely some value of trying to hit those areas instead of the commercial avenues. No. And I like that you share that because it's important for people to understand like, okay, just because you are in a more populated area, city, whatever it might be, doesn't mean you can't go out and find some of that relaxation, just that grounding element that nature really can bring to you as well as you said, getting that sunlight uh, first thing in the morning to really just help with circadian rhythms, just yeah. uh, health of your day. So Chris, what would you say is maybe your biggest vice? Um, I would say that one of the things that I'm, uh, that I am sort of struggling to work on, I would say I'm still working on it right now, but I definitely ha- have tended to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. So I, I really am tr- working hard right now to try to tame down the perfectionist of myself and, and get things done. I would say if I were to look back on all the different things that I've disappointed people on in the past, it's probably been a mix of that and also overcommitting myself. So I would say trying to focus more on following through with things than on making things perfect and also trying to be much more conscious of what are actually a manageable set of tasks and 
uh, say no to things are, are two of the things that I'm working on most now. And I think that it's kind of easy to convince yourself that to be a good person is to not say no. And to be a good person is to do your best. But when those are taken out of balance, you know, your, your best can be an endless excuse to never finish something. And saying no to people can be very important because people will much rather have an honest no uh, at the beginning than depend on you for something that's never going to happen at the end. So it's, those are, I would say I'm still struggling to work on those now. Um, I, hopefully I'm making a lot of progress. I like to think I am, but, um, but yeah, I would put those two. So what is your vision for a healthy future? Maybe, uh, 10 years from now, a hundred years from now, either for yourself or just humanity as a whole. Um, I think that we, what I would like to see is people in general who are more in touch with, uh, with people, consumers more in touch with the people who are producing their food and the people who are producing food more in touch with where the food is coming from. I think that on the whole, our farming system has and I, you know, I think even now with greater consciousness about, for example, grass feeding, there still isn't enough emphasis on soil health. And you can grow a plant in, and it, you know, it's not just about having the minerals in the soil, but just to give an illustrative example, boron is, a, is an essential uh, mineral, uh, it's an essential part of the photosynthetic machinery of a plant. And it's the photosynthetic machinery of the plant that incorporates all the fat-soluble vitamins. And boron can be in the soil, but the soil organic matter content or the soil pH can be off and the boron won't be bioavailable to the plant. And so there's no way that if this is the soil problem where you live, there's no way that you can compensate for that by taking boron because the boron being unavailable in the soil is compromising the fat-soluble vitamin content of the plant and the fat-soluble vitamin content of the animal is suffering when the animal is eating the plant. So there's a cascade of effects that is all resulting from a lack of proper attention to the health of the soil. And, uh, you know, over the last 50 or 60 or maybe going on 70 years, our perception of what's important about soil has just been providing a small handful of things from chemical fertilizers that are essential for growth. And I think that has gotten us, the focus on quantity at the expense of quality has gotten us so far off track that on a philosophical level, it's going to take us a long time to get back there because we're kind of chewing off one piece at each point. And yeah, there are farmers who pay close attention to the soil. But I would say in general, uh, you know, in general, people adopted organic and then they started adopting. Now they're starting to adopt pasturing. And we're still, it's going to take a while before the, both the consciousness on farmers in general, but also the consumer demand is actually present to really emphasize that whole connection from the community of people back to the soil. 
So what I would ultimately like to see happen is to see is to see those connections actually in place for you know for the average person who's eating their food to be conscious of the quality of that food and they don't have to be a soil scientist but to you know to understand what it means to have food that's produced by farmers who are giving the soil the attention that it deserves that are coming from animals if the case may be that are raised in conditions that are healthy uh, for that animal's well-being. So that would, I think that would, in, that would incorporate many different principles, but that would kind of be the thing that ties together what I'd like to see for the future of food. What do you think are uh, a couple simple steps? I mean, maybe besides looking just for organic or grass-fed, uh, pasture-raised, whatever it might be, or are those mainly the simple steps that really people can just start with following? You mean right now? Yeah. What can people just actionable right. steps that if they're yeah, really looking to get into it? Yeah. Right now, um, I would say that certainly getting into pasture-raised organic food would be a first step in terms of quality. And it, it gets a little complicated because some of the things that people would want to do that are actionable steps can sometimes have adverse consequences. So for example, eating locally is a great idea, but it's not such a great idea if your local soil is deficient in iodine and selenium. And if you're only eating local foods, you can inadvertently give yourself some problems from that. So I think that, um, I would say that going to farmer's markets and seeing what's, you know, how can you make connections with your local farmer that's important getting educated a little bit about food quality and things to look for. So, for example, simple things that you can look for in your eggs are the color of the yolks. If you can favor people who are producing eggs that have darker yellow or orange yolks, shells that have good integrity and crack instead of crumble, and start to look for those signs of quality, then um, then those are, are simple steps that you can move forward with that. If you want to get a little bit more involved, there I would say there. Are, if you look at organizations like the Cornucopia Institute, that rate organic producers according to their food quality, that can be a useful step in uh, trying to move towards greater quality foods. Quite often, with organic foods, what you see is that big corporations come in and do what they need to do to get the basic organic label but kind of dilute or water down or sometimes don't even follow the organic standards because the the there are some documented cases where um, certain companies have just blatantly defied the organic standards and then gotten fined five thousand dollars for it um, so so I think that you know if you if you if you really want to take the next step, I would say pay attention to Cornucopia Institute or some kind of watchdog organization that can really take a deeper look at the quality of the food that you're getting. Are there any other uh, resources that you really follow on a whether it be daily, monthly, whatever basis, uh, really regarding food in general? You mean on food quality or just in, in across the board? Kind of yeah. just yeah, anything really that you like to dive into, whether it be blogs, podcasts, oh, uh, yeah, video, sure. anything? Yeah, um, there are there are quite a few. And um, I would say that over the years, one of my, probably uh, Stefan Guinea's blog, Whole Health Source, has been a go-to uh, source for me. There are a lot of 
others that I that I pay attention to, but uh, that I do so um, somewhat intermittently. I would say, you know what? To be honest, um, I don't think there are any blogs that I read everything of right now, and that's just because I've kind of switched to dealing with more audio format stuff. So I'm definitely heavily biased towards. Uh, content that comes out in audiobooks and podcasts right now just because it's so much easier for me to consume a larger volume of it. And uh, one of the ones that I've been following more recently is Rhonda Patrick's uh, Found My Fitness. She has a, I think she has an email newsletter and uh, video content and a spectrum, but I, I mostly listen to the podcast just you know, for the reasons that I was just describing. Um, but I, I kind of, I kind of mix it up a bit. You know, I go through, I go through phases right now. I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on certain projects. So I'm actually not consuming a lot of nutrition related content. And then when I'll relax a little bit more then I'll, you know, I'll, I'll ease back into it. Um, yeah, I don't know. For me right now, if you want if you want me to follow your content, you better be making a podcast. That's that's the way it goes. <laughs> uh and cuz I'm for the most part I I agree with you. I I watch very few videos. Uh I read very few blogs. It's I'm more the same way. Uh, I enjoy listening to audio. Uh it's a way that works well for me, my lifestyle, uh, and I learn and, all that way. Yeah, and and books. I I mean, I listen to 10 times more audio audible books than I could ever read, you know? Absolutely. So, and I feel like people send me the, people send me requests to review their books. I got one recently that it wasn't even on Kindle. It was just paperback and there was no audible version. And I was, and I wrote back, I was like, to be honest, if I told you, this goes back to what I was saying about saying no. I told this person, like, to be totally honest, even if I were, even if I were overwhelmingly convinced that I wanted to read this and I agreed to read it, it would probably take me three to five years if you don't have it in audio format. Um, just like I just have stacks of, of, of books that are some, I, you know, some are books that I really, really want to read and some are books that people asked me to read and I said, I don't know if I'll read it, but if you really want to send it to me, I'll take it. Um, but even the ones that I, that I really, really want to read, I just, if I don't have them in audio format, I you know I start to read them and then I get busy with something and I, I just can't find that time. And for me, I think you know for someone who doesn't have the personality type where they really need the kind of winding down at night that I do, they could probably read all those before they go to bed. But for me, when my day is consumed with doing work on nutrition, reading about food at night doesn't take my mind off of work. You know what I mean? So, so for me, the you know the the time I the time that I can allocate towards reading a physical book, it, it's just like all of that time is 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 what that's what I do at night to wind down, and so wind that's where I put my fiction, you know, and so that reading uh, reading fiction has the, a special monopoly over my physical book routine. Talking about the winding down, I, I, I've yeah. heard you talk about two uh, recent practice that you've really started with too uh, is some meditation. Then uh, I think you said like using yeah, Headspace. Uh, how has that really impacted your life then too? So I, you know, I started uh, I started trying to do meditation last year, and I found that 
I, I really wanted guided meditation because it wasn't something that I could put a lot of time into the learning curve of doing myself. And before I had the Headspace app, I was going onto the internet in a web browser to get guided meditations. And I couldn't develop the habit because it was such a pain to be going into, like it's much harder to go into a web browser and access an MP3 file than it is to actually play it in an app on the phone. But also the thing with Headspace is they put you into a series and move you along each day. And so there is a sense of of progress that's associated with it that for me, even though it's actually quite trivial. So for example, day two in the Headspace introduction is not that much different from day one. But it's a, so the actual, you know, if you were to try to quantify the difference in content, it's, it's, it would seem trivial or meaningless. But, the, but psychologically, to have a day one and a day two and a day three, and then to just be moved along in this series, it imparts a sense of continuity and progress to it that for me is very psychologically meaningful. So I feel like the Headspace app, the way it's structured, it's made it very easy for me to make it a sustainable habit because they've, they've basically taken the work out of creating and sustaining the habit. So like, yeah, you do have to go tap the Headspace app. Um, but, but that's a lot less work. To, I mean, if you compare that to what I was trying to do before, you go on the internet and then you go to... Uh, you go to a set of guided meditations and then you're like, hmm, which one do I pick? Well, I did the 10 one minute one on gratitude yesterday. Do I want to do that again or do I want to try a different one? Well, I don't know if I can handle 15 minutes. Well, I don't know if this one's going to be as good as that one. And there's so, where the decision fatigue even yeah, comes there, in. Yeah, yeah it like, sort of defeats the whole, the, like the whole point is, of, of meditation is, um, is to you know, gain like, Control over your mind and relax, and uh, and um, and you know get rid of this decision fatigue and endless stream of thoughts, and then and then you just get this endless stream of thoughts and trivial decisions to try to find which meditation thing to to do. So um, and so you know, I I did cave and pay the subscription fee for Headspace, and you do get choices after that. Like, do you want to do this? thing on creativity do you want to do it on this thing on relationships or whatever but you but you then you choose that and you and you're on that stream for 30 days so the amount of the amount of decision involved in that is like you know once every 30 days you have to make it some decision on which course you want to and you know you're not committed in the sense that you can't change it but you're committed in the sense that you don't have to change it and you don't have to think about it so you put yourself in this series and you get up the next morning, you don't have to think, what am I going to meditate about today? You just, you know, you just go into it. And so I, you know, I think what would help someone create a sustainable habit, that's going to be highly individualized and not everyone is going to have the same experience as me. But I would suspect that a lot of people would have the same experience as me. And I think, you know, for a lot of people who are, who, you know, realize the value in creating that habit, but don't have the initial mental energy bandwidth to invest in the in creating the habit. What Headspace does is it 
they do that work for you and make the institution of the habit is as easy as it possibly could be. And I think that that sums it up right there. If you can make something easy, you're going to implement it. If it's something where uh, you have to go through and spend time every day figuring out or spend hours like one day a week, like trying to figure this out, it's going to make it a lot harder to make a daily routine. Yeah, for sure. Now, Chris, uh, I want to be respectful of your time here. A couple of last questions for you. Uh, one of the ones that I always ask people is, who would you want to hear on this podcast? But you could either answer that or I know your podcast, you don't necessarily interview people, but is there something, somebody that you would either want to have on to kind of ask them questions on? Or is there just a topic where it's completely off the wall that you haven't really thought about touching, but you think in, in your mind it could be fun to really just dive into? So for me, uh, I mean, I'm not, yeah, like you said, I'm not, I'm not getting guests on my podcast and that probably won't happen for a while, but I would be, I would be really interested to see some of the people who have influenced the work that I've done. So, I mean, a lot of people want to get me on a show to talk about fat soluble vitamins, for example, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of work that was done, uh, sort of behind the layer of the work that I did. So I would be really interested in seeing um, Case Vermeer or Leon Sugars from, these are vitamin K researchers from the Netherlands. I'd be interested to see uh, them on a podcast sometime because not only were, not only did they do a lot of work that was highly influential in the work that I did on the fat-soluble vitamins, but also they're doing a lot of innovative work trying to bring better testing to the consumer. So they're doing some work. I don't know if this will be available in the United States anytime soon, but they're doing some work on like home kits that you can get to monitor the vitamin K the the vitamin K status in your blood vessels. And so you can you know at home you can like, you know, self-experiment and see like okay, is this supplement regime or is this dietary regime actually getting sufficient vitamin K in my blood vessels and stuff like that. So I think those, I'm, you know, people are always asking me, what do we, what do we get to test with this? And my answer is always, I don't like any of the tests that are available. So it would be, it would be great to hear from someone, um, someone who's actually innovating in the, the testing area for that, for sure. And um, I would say the stuff that I'm working on now with inflammation, uh, one of the guys who's been really pivotal in that field has been, I forget his first name, his last name is Sirhan, S-E-R-H-A-N, and uh, he's one of the ones who's done some real pivotal work in the inflammation resolution type of thing. Any specific specific questions that you would want to ask uh, any of them? Well, the folks from the Netherlands, I would ask them, I want to measure my vitamin K status on a practical level how can I go about doing that? And um, I don't know. I'm kind of, you know, with the inflammation stuff, I'm kind of knee-deep in that right now. So I need to I need to emerge from it to be able to look at it from the 30,000-foot view and kind, of, and kind of get a sense of what my questions would be. Um, but I would, I would predict when I come out of that, Sirhan's one of the guys I'd want to talk to. Very good, very good. So, Chris, in closing... 
where can our listeners uh, find more about you? Where can they go? I know you have a uh, new, new blog, I believe, and everything up there. But uh, share, share with that, the podcast, everything, yeah. please. Yeah, so uh, my chrismasterjohnphd.com is the home to all my content. If you go there, you can click on blog for the blog. You can click on podcast for the podcast. My, the name of my podcast is The Daily Lipid. You can find it in your favorite podcast app. You can find all the show notes um, on chrismasterjohnphd.com slash podcast. And then I'm on social media. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Snapchat. And on any of those, if you just search for my name, Chris Master John, that's the easiest way to pull it up. Excellent, Chris. Anything that you want to leave the listeners with as some parting words? Yeah, I would just say um, balance, right? We talked a lot about balance today. So, uh, you know, it's it's good to take a few minutes out and kind of try to look at your life from the 30,000-foot view and, and see, you know, what is the thing that I should work on most because it may be the case that the thing you need to work on most is to stop working on the thing that you're working on most because you're neglecting other areas of your life. And so, um, you know, it, it, that may seem kind of obvious, but when you're, in, when you're in the thick of it, you really can't see what those things are and you need to kind of take 5, 10, 15 minutes a day or maybe an hour or two, uh, you know, one time to kind of sit back and evaluate what you're, what you're doing and, and look at the different parts of your life and see what you're giving undue attention to and what you're neglecting. Excellent, Chris. I love it. Make sure everybody uh, seeking that balance. Make sure go over to chrismasterjohnphd.com. Check everything out there. Check out the Daily Lipid Podcast. Chris, thank you again so much for your time. Thank you, Nick. It's been great. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to head over to BarenakedHealthPodcast.com to check out the show notes for today's episode. While you're there, go to my calendar and schedule a 15-minute call so we can discuss what is your biggest struggle when it comes to maintaining your health. Remember that I'm a holistic lifestyle coach and the show is sponsored by you guys. Each of you that I work with helps me to be able to put out podcasts like this for free. So thanks again for your love and support. Finally, if the show has helped you out in any way, please head over to iTunes to give the Bare Naked Health Podcast a positive comment and five-star rating. This really goes a long way in getting the word out with how simple health can be and helping to share the podcast with others. So thank you. Mm-hmm.